Praise the Lord for those truths and the truths that we're about to receive from His Word. If you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6, John chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 60 through 71 this morning. John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. To whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? In the passages leading up to the one that we'll study this morning, we have seen that Jesus has been followed by a crowd of about eight to 10,000 to whom he has miraculously fed bread and fishes. They have been questioning him, really seeking to have him miraculously fill their empty bellies once again, and he has turned the conversation to why he has really come, including stating that he himself is the bread that comes from heaven, even as he has been sent from the Father. And to top this off, he actually told them they must eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to have eternal life. All of these statements have stirred no little amount of controversy amongst those who are listening to him. And today we conclude this dialogue from chapter 6. If you're able to, would you please stand with me? I know we just had you standing and sitting and standing again here. But uh, I'd like to read verses 52 to give a little context down through 71. John chapter 6, verses 52 to the end of the chapter. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread, the manna, the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this... Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You may be seated. That is the word of God read aloud to you in the New Testament reading as we've had it read in the Old Testament reading earlier. May be a blessing to you. 
you join me once again in prayer? Lord, this morning we ask once again, as we open your word, that your spirit who inspired these words and the original autographs would now illuminate our eyes and our hearts to an understanding and an application of these truths. Lord, that we may not just be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. And that as we work our way through this passage, Lord, if there are those who do not know you, that today might be the day that they would have their hearts of stone removed and replaced with a heart of flesh, and that you might grant them repentance and faith, and that they might come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not as those who walked away, as we see here, but as those who remained. And so, Lord, I ask that you would get me out of the way, humble me, hide me behind the cross and the empty tomb. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some have said that doctrine divides. As I've heard it, many who have said it mean it negatively, as in doctrine divides and that is not a good thing. I would submit that they have just made a divisive statement, actually. I would say, as others have said, that of necessity, doctrine divides. I was just talking with Jeff Winberry yesterday about something called theological triage. Hang with me for a minute on this. Let me just explain it to you real quickly. By this, it has been stated that we must take time to recognize levels of agreement and disagreement and understand what truly ought to set us apart or separate us. Let's think about it in three levels. That's typically the way we talk about it. There are doctrines that divide at the level of orthodoxy, that which Christians have believed since the time of the apostles. If you cannot say that you believe perhaps something like this, that Jesus is God and the only Savior of the world, you cannot rightly claim to be an orthodox Christian. We sometimes call this Catholicity, and that is Catholic with a small c, not a big c as in Roman Catholic. In other words, it's something that all true Christians must believe in order to be considered orthodox. We call that layer number one. That is a layer that truly divides. You you cannot claim to be a believer in Christ unless you hold to these basic doctrines. Layer number two may be something that separates us like denominationally, but not at the same level as level one of orthodoxy. So, for instance, baptism separates us us as those who hold to believer's baptism over against our Presbyterian brethren who hold to infant baptism. Now, just to be clear, we can't get into all the doctrines uh, that they would hold to, but they're not saying that that uh, baptism saves those infants. If they did, then we're back to level one because that's an orthodox problem, right? Uh, But but there's differences of of opinion and and agreement and disagreement on that. But that's not at the level of separation in the sense of fellowship. We can rightly fellowship and do uh, even gospel outreach with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, those that hold to an Orthodox Christianity. We just happen to disagree on that matter. Then there is a third level where fellowship, even though there is disagreement, can happen even within the same church. But it's not at the level of separation of second degree where there's denominational differences, let's say, and certainly not at the level of uh, first doctrines. But all that to say is that uh, there is why, that's why there are denominations and separations. Doctrine does divide. And at the first level of orthodoxy, we would say that those who do not agree with the fundamentals of the faith, if you will, 
They are not true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They cannot be because they do not hold to those doctrines. Now, I want to be very careful to say as well that there are people who are infants in the faith. They are new to the faith, and they don't understand necessarily all of the ins and outs of that. I mean, goodness gracious, uh, as someone who's been a Christian, Christian since I was 16 years old, I don't understand all the ins and outs of, of all of it. But, you know, I, I don't share the gospel with someone and say, you must believe in the Trinity to become a Christian. But as time moves on, if they are truly in Christ, they will accept and by faith the Trinity. It is a reality after all. But doctrine has rightly divided. It has separated on those foundational Christian truths. And so in our text today, we see a finality to this dialogue that Jesus has been having with this crowd. And as we will see, it will separate some from Jesus who cannot tolerate what he has been saying about himself. This, if you will, is level one theological triage that we see going on here today. In other words, um, as much as we want to see the Lord Jesus Christ, in some sense, uniting as he does the church by his spirit, we also recognize that there are many ways in which Jesus in his earthly ministry is also dividing out those who would claim to be followers of God who cannot accept, who cannot tolerate what he says. And that word tolerate uh, is very important to our text today. So here's the main point. If you happen to have the bulletin uh, there with you, you can turn it over and see that there. If you're watching online, I don't want to forget about you. Uh, There is what was emailed out to you earlier. The main point is this. When the truth of Jesus is explained, even if it is by himself, it tends to expose the hearts and intents of men. When the truth of Jesus is explained, it tends to expose the hearts and intents of men. When, when we bring to bear upon a conversation about religion or about how one is reconciled to God or how different religions separate, when we bring the truth of Jesus to the conversation, it tends to divide. Um, and so we need to remember that this morning as we see two kinds of followers exposed in our text this morning. Two kinds of followers exposed. The first is this in verses 60 through 66, those who walk away, those who walk away. You see, there's a group of people that have been following Jesus because of what he has done, as we have seen in John chapter 6. And even as he goes into the synagogue and continues this teaching in Capernaum there, uh, we recognize, by the way, we, we mentioned this last week, that he is he is. Speaking on the issue of the bread, I think it was one of uh, maybe Andreas Kostenberger who said perhaps this was even happening at the time in the synagogue when they would have been speaking about manna from the book of Exodus, maybe opening those scrolls and talking about them. He is speaking authoritatively about who the true bread is. And as he continues to do that, the division between those who truly want to follow him and those who do not is seen, and it's very clearly seen in our text today. Look at verse 61. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, verse 60 again. Uh, with me. Uh, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, what is this hard saying? We read it in our scripture reading this morning. It is this idea of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And we'll see in a moment again and be reminded again that they're missing the point. They, they've excelled at missing the point here. And that is that he has already told them many times that they needed to believe in him in order to have eternal life. And the emphasis upon that is that, is eternal life and receiving him. And by talking about his blood and his his flesh, he's saying, 
He's already said he's going to give his flesh for the sins of the world. Uh, This is a receiving of all of who he is. That's what's meant by that. But but as he digs into this more and more, and it is uh, provocation, it is provocative language. We see now the response to that, which is, this is hard. Who can understand this? Well, who are these disciples that are saying this? Well, we see very clearly as we read down in the text, this is not the 12 disciples. These are those, at least in part, who have been following Jesus, many of them for what he could give them rather than receiving him as he has called them to do. The language of their question here is interesting. This is a hard or harsh word. Who can listen to it or who can understand it or who can accept it or who can tolerate it? We've seen already that they have grumbled against Jesus' words earlier in the text. They grumbled about him calling himself as one who has come from heaven. And then we've seen them dispute among themselves about what he means by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And now they are absolutely flummoxed because they cannot accept what he has said in the verses just previous to this. As James Boyce points out, this is not just a matter of not understanding It is a matter of not being able to tolerate what he has said. It's not just a matter of just not hearing what he has said, or even in some sense understanding how he is drawing a line from the manna that comes from heaven to himself being the bread that comes from heaven and sent from the Father. The issue is that they cannot accept it. They cannot tolerate it. They cannot receive it. This is evidenced by Jesus' question to them in verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? The idea of offense here is like that which brings about a response of shock and anger. We might say it like this. Are you shocked and angered by this? That's the the force at which Jesus is saying this, asking this question. Are you shocked and angered by this. Again, we showed last week and are reminded again this week that these words from Jesus are certainly provocative. He has told them they must eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to have eternal life, but he has already stated they must believe in him. He is using these words, once again, we say, to explain they must receive all of who he is. And Jesus now brings this discussion to full circle by referencing his origin once again, if you will. Read verse 62 with me. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So this sort of brings this argument back to where he has come from. He says, I am the bread that has come from heaven. Remembering once again that that phraseology, I am, is is pointing to the Old Testament idea of Yahweh. I am the bread that has come from heaven. Oh, there's so much theology wrapped up in that, dear ones. There's so much theology of who Jesus is and where he has come from and what he has come to do uh, wrapped up in that statement. And they understood that. And that's why earlier on they wanted to kill him because of what he was saying. Jesus challenged them in that they find these sayings hard because they have not accepted all of what he has stated concerning himself. He has already said that he is from the Father and that he is descended from heaven. Look at John chapter 5 and verse 36. He says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. That would be John the baptizer. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, 
The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Certainly, uh, perhaps a different crowd at this point, but Jesus has made it very clear that he is sent from the Father. Back over to John chapter 6 and verse 38. Listen to what he says. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. Read on there, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. Once again, he's drawing this line from himself to his Father who has sent him to do his will. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The constant refrain in this dialogue that Jesus has been having with these folks is that he has been sent to grant eternal life, and they must believe in him. All of what he has said must be taken into account. He is both God and in the incarnation he puts on humanity. He is sent from the Father as the eternal Son of God and him being sent, he puts on perfect humanity and it is real flesh and real blood and those elements which will be truly given for the world, every tribe, tongue and nation and they must accept all of these things as true. This is almost like Jesus saying, if you can't accept the reality that my flesh and blood will be given for sinners, Will you accept that I'm from heaven? If I were to ascend today, if you saw me uh, on a cloud rising back up into heaven, would you even believe that? Remember they said to him, well, if you're truly the son of God, if you truly are the Messiah, produce for us a sign. Oh, you mean like the time when he fed eight to 10,000 people, you people, <laughs> with bread and fish? And now he's saying, okay, what if the sign is suddenly I ascend to where I came from? Would that be enough? Would you accept that? What if this sign was given to you? Will you believe then? In other words, these words about my flesh and blood are not only words you have not tolerated. You have not tolerated my entire message. That I am sent from the Father and that I am doing His will as I go to make myself a sacrifice for humanity. He then follows these words up by stating again that there is nothing they can do in and of themselves to come to him. In conjunction with the previous language about none being able to come to him without the Father drawing them, he invokes the ministry of the Spirit as a way to understand that being drawn. Look at verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. See, Jesus has now described the role of the Father in salvation, the role of the Son in the one, as the one who's being sent. He has given his flesh and his blood for the world. And he tells them, like he told Nicodemus back in John 3, this is a move of the Spirit. This cannot occur without the Spirit. And the words I speak to you are spirit and life. What's the problem with those who are listening to Jesus and are very much showing the fact that they are going to reject him? Well, many of them believe their heritage, their Jewishness was enough to make them right with God. We come from the right stock. We are the people of God, Israel. We'll see in chapter 8, they appeal even more ardently to this. But Jesus is calling them out here as those who are stubbornly set in their ways. He has been giving them words of spirit and life, but they continue 
to not believe. Look at verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it would be that would betray him. And as Jesus knew this, uh, as it says, Jesus knew this from the beginning. The question is, what beginning? How do we understand this beginning? From the beginning of time or from the beginning of this whole event? Well, certainly, as the eternal Son of God, he would have known from the beginning of time. But this likely has more to do with the current event or even Jesus' earthly ministry. Many had made it clear by their intentions that when they had followed him uh, to the other shore, they only desired bread and that he would do the same thing that he had done for them previously. And so Jesus is clearly saying, you have followed me for these purposes only. You do not believe. So Jesus ties us all together once again with what he has previously stated about the drawing of the Father. Again, in conjunction with this idea of the Spirit. Verse 65. Notice how he puts this here. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. This is why I've told you this. And their response to this is to walk away. And not only walk away, excuse me, but never come back. Not just to walk away, but never come back. Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Interesting to think about when he has accused them of not believing, but tells them, you can't come because the Father has not drawn you. One truth we must take into account, especially as we consider accusations that what else are they going to do if not drawn, is to consider the state of man. So we think about this, we have to have an understanding of who man is and his fallenness as we consider it. Man is not neutral. And that's kind of where we tend to, we kind of struggle when we think about mankind being neutral as if, well, they could have, but they didn't, but Jesus is telling them they can't. So what if they really wanted to and God's not allowing them to because he's not drawing them? Well, typically when we have that in mind, we're thinking that Man really, really wants to, but God is not allowing them. Or that man is just neutral. right? But man is not neutral. Mankind is sinful from the garden. In fact, mankind hates God. They want nothing to do with God. And so when Jesus comes along in this context and says, You say you love God, but you actually do not love God or want to follow God because you do not love me or want to follow me. The doctrine suddenly divides. Mankind hates God and they're opposed to God. Their hearts are hard and these difficult truths, rather than drawing them to God, actually makes their hearts harder. Rather than saying, I desire to be drawn to the Father, explain this again, I desire to know which would have been a possible sign that God was drawing them, they rather cannot tolerate what he has said and they walk away. They they don't say, uh, uh, no, no, Jesus, uh, please explain this to us again. We, we, We really, 
No, do you see how much Jesus has said? This is one of the longest chapters. If we're going to divide things up into chapters and verses, this is one of the longest dialogues that Jesus has that we have recorded in Scripture. And he continues to tell them, you must believe in me, you must believe in me, you must believe in me in order to have eternal life. And then he starts to use provocative language because he sees and knows that they are going to reject him. And rather than say, um, no, Lord Jesus, please, we want to know again, what are you saying? They walk away. Never to follow him again. So we see in these first seven verses, this first group, this first response, those who walk away. Those who cannot tolerate what Jesus says, and by this action we see simultaneously those who are not being drawn, but who are rejecting Jesus. And therefore, as he has said, they are not ones who are kept and they will not be raised on the last day. As those who are believers in Jesus Christ, we do not have the insight which Jesus has, and we are called to make disciples, and sometimes that comes through arduous work and conversations. I just want to say this real quickly, don't give up. If you're having gospel conversations with people, don't make the assumption, well, they must be those that are rejecting Jesus, therefore I need to walk away. No, you let them walk away. If there's going to be any walking away. Don't give up. This may be an indication of their true spiritual status. But we continue to plead with them to turn from their sin and believe in the gospel. But we also recognize that there are times when our journey with them may be done. And God may use others and other means to draw them to himself. himself. For those who are in our midst who may be realizing you are following Jesus with the intent to only receive from him what you believe you are due, rather than seeing that you must receive all of who he is in his perfect life, death, and resurrection. My call, my plea to you is to trust in him today. Having seen those who walked away, let us now turn to the second group, those who remain. It's our second point on our outline there, those who remain. With the freshness of those who walk away on the forefront of their mind, Jesus asks a very important and telling question. Look at verse 67. So we know that these other disciples are not the twelve because Jesus now turns to the twelve. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? Jesus is asking what their final verdict is on his words. I mean, that's really what he's doing here. These others have not been able to tolerate. These are hard sayings, they said. Who can accept it? Who can tolerate it? And now he turns to his disciples and says, what do you think of my words? Are you going to walk away as well? Will they respond like those who are not able to tolerate Jesus' words and walk away? In the sermons leading up to this section, I've mentioned this confession of Peter and why it is so important and how it is a response that has certainly developed over the time that they have spent with Jesus. We've been kind of trying to get to this moment where Peter makes his confession in the Gospel of John because they have been with him since the beginning of his earthly ministry and they have witnessed more than just the miracle of the feeding of the uh, 10,000, if you will. They have witnessed many things, including a a personal, private miracle where he walks on water to them in a boat. Let's look at the response together. Look at verses 68 and 69. 
Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Why have I called this response a confession? Because Peter is confessing what he believes to be true of the Lord. I love this response. Peter is sort of the spokesman for the disciples, isn't he? We see that often in scriptures. To whom shall we go? He's speaking on behalf of all of them. To whom shall we go? They are making this confession together, which is why Jesus' response is so vital that we'll see in a moment. Peter's speaking on behalf of all of them, but Jesus knows there's one who doesn't believe, right? But Peter is responding corporately and confessionally. This is what we believe. So let's break this down for a minute here. Guys, I don't have a clock on me. Does anybody... How am I doing? Oh, there is a, there's a clock over there. Thank you. Well, that clock's slow. It says 10.15, so I have more time, right? <laughs> well, let's break down this confession. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter calls Jesus Lord. Don't let your eyes skip over that too quickly because we are used to this title. Jesus has claimed several times already in the Gospel of John and will several times more say, I am. I am. The Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. Something you do your devotions in every day, right? The Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, the Old Testament that Jesus and his disciples would have read. The way that it renders the name of God, Yahweh, I am, is the same word that is used for Lord in the New Testament. It's the word kurios. I don't often tell you the Greek. But it's, it's a very important word. In the Old Testament, the, the, the Greek Old Testament that they would have read, when they would have come across the name of the Lord, it would have said kurios. It would have said, Lord, as in I am. Peter is confessing here that he understands exactly what Jesus is saying when he says, I am. Peter is be, begins this confession with affirming that Jesus is the I am. Secondly, he says, where, we, where, where shall we go? For what reason? Because where else would we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. There is no question in the mind of Peter. These words that others cannot tolerate, we recognize are words of eternal life. Peter is contrasting exactly what the others have said. Who can tolerate these words? Lord, where are we to go? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. We, we, we see and hear and understand that even though there are these things you're saying that we may not quite grasp, we get it. <laughs> in order to be given eternal life, we must believe in you. This is what Jesus has been saying and promising throughout this entire dialogue. John chapter 6 and verse 27. Look at it. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. What does he say? Eternal life. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
Verses 43 through 47, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. And then he says, I am the bread of life. Sort of putting that final seal on what he has said about himself. There is no ambiguity in what Jesus says here. And Peter confesses this to be the case. The words which Jesus has spoken are words of eternal life. And then he says, we have believed. We have believed. The word here for believed is the common word in John and the rest of the New Testament to signify saving belief in Jesus. In fact, many times the Gospel of John is called the Gospel of Belief because this word is used so often. Unlike those who walk away, they have believed that Jesus' words about himself are true. Not only this, it says they have come to know. Through what they have seen and experienced, they have arrived at a knowledge. But what, what must we attribute this to? What does Jesus attributed it to? The Father's what? Drawing. They, they have come to know and observe nothing different than what others have seen and observed. I mean, these 10,000 people have just witnessed a miraculous feeding. And yet, many have walked away never to return. But for Peter and the rest of the apostles, except for one, this has been the way in which God has drawn them to himself. You know, it's interesting... I often reference Acts chapter 2, uh, sort of the, the beginning of Peter's ministry as an as a apostle who is helping establish the church. What does he say to the Jewish people who he's preaching to that morning? He says, this Jesus has been attested to you by miracles from God. I'm paraphrasing. The very thing that Peter confesses here is what he then proclaims to those listening at the day of Pentecost. God has shown you this. And praise the Lord, on the day of Pentecost, what do they say? They don't say, this is hard to tolerate, we have to walk away from this. They say, you know, uh, Luke says in Acts there, they were cut to the heart, said, what must we do to be saved? Different response at Pentecost. They realize they've crucified the Lord of glory. Right? That's what had to happen. God had planned it that way. But these who are with Jesus who say, on, or Peter says on their behalf, have been drawn and come to Jesus. These two concepts combined, Kossenberger says, expresses the firmness of conviction arrived at by the twelve as a result of a thoroughgoing process. They have been walking with Jesus and seeing these things. What have they believed? What have they come to believe? That you are, Jesus, the Holy One of God. Now some translations, like the King James Version, will say something like, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is reminiscent of Peter's confession in other Gospels, but simply because Peter doesn't use those exact words here doesn't mean that they are not implicit in what he has said. Jesus has declared himself to be the Son of God, John chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. And others recognized, <clears throat> excuse me, recognized him as Messiah. And to the woman at the well, he says, I am he, John 4, 26. There is no less a statement of, 
uh, belief and acceptance of these terms in what Peter has said in the very words of confession here. And notice this. Jesus doesn't say, Peter, you've got it all wrong. No, 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 Peter, you've misunderstood what I have said. Does he? He doesn't tell the woman at the well, no, I'm not him. In fact, he says, I am. But Jesus' response here does reveal that he knows that even amongst those who have stayed, this confession is not true of all of them. Look at verse 70 and 71. This is a very curious response, isn't it? That Jesus makes to Peter here. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Why is this Jesus' response? Because not even all who are among those to whom Peter is speaking on their behalf will continue to follow him. And they were not all truly his. John seems to highlight in contrast to Peter's confession that Judas still betrayed Jesus. I mean, you have to remember, John is writing this much, many, many, many years later after this actually occurs. In fact, he's probably the last, written the last gospel. And yet he chooses to highlight the fact that even those who remained, one of them is a devil, Jesus says. Perhaps John does this to highlight the fact that all who are among us are not always of us. These are the same words that the same author, John, uses in 1 John 2, 18 and 19. You don't need to turn there, just listen. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Little Antichrist, not the main Antichrist. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have what? Continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. A reality we too often face in the church. And the reality is, is that someone can make a confession of faith or a profession of faith. And then later on, what do we discover? That was not true. They themselves had betrayed Christ. So this leaves us with several questions this morning. What do we confess? You know, it's easy to take a confession of faith, a statement of faith, and either simply sign off on them and say, sure, that's what I believe. It's quite another thing to convictionally believe it and follow the Lord no matter what. Are we simply giving lip service to what we say we believe, or do we continue to trust in the finished work of Christ and continue to obey Him and all that He has called us to do? Not perfectly, dear ones. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's to believers. Not anything has to do with us. These are gifts. Repentance, faith, God gives these to us, but we do work in cooperation with the Spirit who has given us life. John chapter 6 and verse 
63, as Jesus has said, these words are spirit and life. This is a spiritual work. The spirit works with us and we work in cooperation, submitting to him. Are we pointing our fellow believers, especially those within this congregation here, to a true confession? I think we look at statements of faith or confessions and sort of know what they are and they're there and but we forget that we have said, I believe this and I need to know why I believe it and, and what I believe, not just for the sake of apologetics, being able to answer critics, but that these being summations of what we believe, they are our aids to push us back into the scriptures to meditate upon truths that are foundational to our faith. How often do we think about categories of faith? On Wednesday nights, we're going through the Heidelberg Catechism. Not that we hold to all that the, cate- the Heidelberg Catechism uh, gives us there, but it helps us think through doctrine and, and walk through things and know why we believe what we believe and, and hold to those things convictionally. And it helps us grow in our walk. A confession is that a truth we confess and these organized statements of faith drive us back to the scriptures, back to Jesus with questions like, to whom shall we go? But it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? It's a rhetorical question. It drives us back to the foundational truth. There is nowhere else to go but to God, back to the triune God, back to Jesus. The work of the flesh is to no avail. And when we get to the end of ourselves and trying without submitting to God and His Word, when we go through uh, seasons of doubt and despair, we are reminded that only the Father, the Son, and the Spirit satisfy. And who has come to reconcile us to God? But the Lord Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? Speaking of the Heidelberg, this kind of reminds me of the first question that the Heidelberg Catechism asks. I love this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? This is what the response is supposed to be to that question. That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all, that all things must work together for my salvation Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto him. Sweet gospel truth. To whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Perhaps you're one who is here and never confessed this truth in your heart. You've never come to Jesus and received all of who he is, believing that he lived a perfect life, that he gave his body and his blood for the sins of the world, and that he rose again, conquering over sin and death, and that he has ascended and is coming again. My plea to you is, this morning, trust in him. Pray with me, please. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this. Your word this morning, having gone forth, we trust your Holy Spirit to illuminate the eyes and hearts of those of us in Christ.
that we might know that our only hope is in Christ, that we might live in that way. And then, Lord, I pray that we would encourage one another with these truths, especially within this local assembly as we do deal with doubt and despair. And I pray for those, Lord, who are in our midst that do not know you, that today would be the day that they would come to know you through turning from their sins and and believing in Christ alone to be reconciled to you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.